religion may well be an inhibiting factor when it comes to the formation of a Mauritian identity. In Mauritius, we tend to think of ourselves as Hindus, Catholics, Muslims. Identity in Mauritius is defined very largely by religion. Whereas in this country, you, know, you talk about race, you talk about color. Identity in Mauritius is totally different. Welcome back. It's a week later. For Vinod and I, it's just a few seconds later. Here we are. My guest is Vinod Buschit. He holds a degree from Wesleyan, another one from NYU, another one from a little outfit called Harvard University. He spent 29 years in the world of economic development, which for those of you listening who might be authors or of an artistic bent, that is what we call a real job. He worked at the World Bank. We'll ask you about that later. He worked at the International Finance Corporation, and he was also a secondary school teacher. He is now an author of a fantastic book called Silent Winds, Dry Seas, which came out last year, 2021, and is released by Penguin Random House. We talked about Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes last week, and today we're going to talk about your book, which I read and I absolutely loved. You have such a beautiful prose style. It was just easy to read and wonderful and lovely. And even though the subject matter was difficult and sometimes very uncomfortable and awkward, it was just a beautiful read and I loved it. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Go check it out. There'll be a link in the description. So my first question, and this is a big one, and this is one that you've gotten before, but I would like you to answer it for me too, which is this is definitely autobiographical, but it is also a novel. So why isn't it just an autobiography? Why did you decide to make it a novel? An autobiography would require me to be precise almost on every point. I would have to specify the dates. I would have to stick to facts. What I have done is I have allowed my imagination to roam when necessary. For one thing, it enables me to do dramatic compression, to add momentum to the story. If you recall, there's one chapter which takes place during a cyclone, which lasts over three days. Now, the events in the chapter actually occurred over a period of a year. I make them happen in a period of three days. That's what fiction does. In other places, I have manipulated memories from different time periods and put them all together. Right where I'm sitting now, next to me, there's Carlos Santana's Abraxas album. Now, while I was writing this chapter where I was addressing this confrontation between my aunt and another woman, then I saw this album, which kind of reminded me of the woman that my aunt confronted. So I brought in that Abraxas album to the story. And behind me, there's a novel by Herman Hess, Demian, coming of age novel. I also integrated that into the chapter. So fiction allows you to do that. But there are also other reasons. One is the possibility of lawsuits. My book does deal with political corruption. Some of the politicians that I talk about in the novel, their descendants are still there. Some of them still have power, and I have to take that into account. So there are various reasons why. But the, I think the most important is fiction, by enabling you to use your imagination, fiction lets you illuminate the human condition. An autobiography would be a bit too self-centered. I wanted the novel to also be about the country, Mauritius. 
it's not only about the narrator, it's not only about the narrator's family, it's the coming of age of Mauritius. That answers the question that we teased the episode with last week. So can you just explain to us a little bit, what is Mauritius? Where is Mauritius? Tell us a little bit about it. So Mauritius, not to be confused with the Western African country of Mauritania, is an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, south of the equator, almost on the Tropic of Capricorn, 1,500 miles off the east coast of South Africa and 500 miles off the east coast of Madagascar. If you draw a line between South Africa and Australia, Mauritius would fall somewhere in the middle. And it's south of India and south of Sri Lanka. It was, quote-unquote, discovered by Arab sailors. I can use the word discovered because there were no natives in Mauritius. Following that, the Portuguese came but did not settle down. So the first settlers were Dutch, who left after 50 years or so. The French really are the ones who colonized the country, brought in sort of slaves from Africa. When the British took over in 1810, shortly after in 1833, they abolished slavery, at which point the formerly enslaved people refused to work for their white masters. So the French planters asked the British to bring laborers from India, indentured laborers, who came on a contract to Mauritius. That's how my ancestors ended up in Mauritius. So today, the population of Mauritius consists 65% of Indian origin, 25% mixed African white, and then the remaining 5% are white and Chinese. So the whites are mostly of French origin. That's more history of Mauritius than I learned even researching this podcast. So thank you so much for that. Can you describe the political situation in Mauritius? I would say Mauritius is one of the few countries in the region that has been a continuous democracy since independence in 1968. We've had regular elections every five years. You can almost predict every 10 years the government gets kicked out. The system is British, as I point out in the novel, actually, that we have a parliamentary system headed by a prime minister. There's a president who is kind of ceremonial, really. It's a British-style democracy. It has been politically stable. And economically, it has been a success story, though there are still problems to be resolved. The choice to make this a novel, I think, makes it a better book because the way you depict Vishnu, and it's all first person, is so personal. And because a lot of these are at least amalgamations of your actual experience, it seems so real that it makes an incredibly strong novel. Thank you. Thank you. Other thing is, in real life, I have four siblings. Vishnu doesn't have any siblings. How did your siblings feel about that? They're okay with it. They are so proud that this book came out. My mom is a memoirist. One of the things that happened when her book came out was that one of her brothers said, hey, you wrote about this thing that happened, but while that was happening, I was doing this and you didn't put it in the book. And she basically said, well, that wasn't part of my life. That was your life. (laughs) Write your own book. (laughs) I have many cousins, but in the novel, you only have one cousin. Shankar is a composite of different cousins. I was really moved by his story and the scene with you and him in like a Harvard pub where 
years ago made the decision that he wasn't going to try to move to America or wasn't going to go to Britain and go to school. Was that real? Is this a real person in your life? That's a real person. I actually was apprehensive that he would not like the way the story is presented. But actually, my apprehensions were not well-founded. He is one of my relatives who read the book, like in one go, and he really loved it. Through him and the relationship he has with his father, I wanted to convey how repressive families can be. See, families are nurturing, but families can also be repressive and oppressive. Also, through his father's character in the chapter, I wanted to address the issue of religious oppression, what I consider to be a problematic in Mauritian society is how religion in general, not only the Hindu religion, but the Hindus, the Catholics, the Muslims, they have a moral code that is so strict that the individual really doesn't get what I call self-fulfillment. I see religion in Mauritius as preventing that from happening. And if you read through the novel, the other point I wanted to make is religion may well be an inhibiting factor when it comes to the formation of a Mauritian identity. In Mauritius, we tend to think of ourselves as Hindus, Catholics, Muslims. Identity in Mauritius is defined very largely by religion. Whereas in this country, you know, you talk about race, you talk about color. Identity in Mauritius is totally different. In your book, Hindus and Muslims seem to associate pretty freely. Yeah, we associate pretty freely. However, when you have moments of political change, there were ethnic riots. Readers in Mauritius noticed, and they applauded me for it, that I tackle the issue of ethnic tensions right on. There's a tendency in Mauritius to forget that part of our history, that prior to independence, there was blood. The way that you depicted it in the book was almost like there would be these intense political rallies, but then kind of everyone would go have a drink afterwards. And it was like, well, we disagree, but we can still hang out. Politics is a national pastime. To jump back to religion and sex and Hinduism, and I'm just going to ask you a very broad question, which is that you and Frank McCourt, I'll say Vishnu and Frank McCourt, both grew up with pretty repressive attitudes towards sex for very different reasons, but with kind of similar results. Why do you think that religion, especially in poor communities, is so obsessed with sex? If you look at Hinduism, if you go to India, there are temples in Kajurao, which are essentially erotic temples. So Hinduism has a very, I would say, ambivalent attitude to sex. There's a celebration of sex, but there's also a repression. I think that in Mauritius, it's the repressive part that prevailed. It could be because we are descendants of laborers who had a very tough time. And the focus was self-discipline. This is a major thing. You work hard. That's what you are. It's a discipline that leads to Puritanism. The version of Hinduism that I saw was a Puritan version of Hinduism. But Hinduism need not be that Puritan. I mean, there are strains of Hinduism which are far from Puritan. 
But the Catholic Church, that's the other issue. You know, in Mauritius, I had Catholic classmates who had to go to confession when they masturbated. And, you know, now many of the priests in Mauritius were either Irish or trained in Ireland also. I don't remember that. <laughs> so it's these same guys that were in McCourt's town. How did you like the scene at the Catholic cemetery, the sorcery scene? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have that also. We also have witchcraft in Mauritius. That scene, the character's name is Voltaire. Voltaire, the philosopher of the French Enlightenment, he would be the last person to believe in sorcery. However, I put him there in the Catholic cemetery, and it was kind of my comment. The way I see it, it could be viewed as the enslaved people way of keeping the ancient religion. You had to have this veneer of Christianity, but be able to continue with your spiritual practices that you had back home, where you come from. It could be viewed as a way of spiritual rebellion, I would say. Wow. I love it. So suffice to say, I loved your book. I think it was really great. It was really a worthwhile read. I think you'll have a lot of success with it. I know you have had a lot of success with it already. If you know it has an interview in the Parish Review, by the way, if you guys want to check that out, it's pretty great. But I have a question for you that has nothing to do with your book and has nothing to do with Angela's Ashes, which is that you worked at the World Bank in some capacity. What does the World Bank do? Is it just a normal bank with a really cool name? Or does the fact that it's the World Bank mean that it does something special? I live in Washington, D.C. There are people who have asked me, when they think of a bank, they think of a physical place where you can go and deposit and withdraw cash before ATMs came about. But then I have to explain, the World Bank is an institution that was founded right after the war with the objective of helping in the reconstruction of countries destroyed or badly impacted by the Second World War. The full name is IBRD, International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. So the initial loans made by the World Bank, it's not a retail bank. It's a wholesale bank whose clients are countries. So initial loans made by the World Bank were made to France and Japan. As the countries of Europe developed, then the focus changed to the newly developing countries, countries that obtained independence in the 50s, countries in Asia and Africa. So then it became a bank that focused on developing economies. So the goal of the World Bank is to promote economic development. Then the World Bank has affiliates. The International Finance Corporation is a private sector affiliate of the bank. That's where I work, IFC. So IFC promotes economic development through the private sector, the World Bank through government policies and so on. Now, there's IMF. Many people confuse IFC, International Finance Corporation, with the IMF. The IMF is the International Monetary Fund, which is concerned also with government's issues of balance of payments and monetary policy as well. For instance, the World Bank. The World Bank, will finance projects that are massive infrastructure projects where you need government funding. IFC, the International Finance Corporation, they will finance a project involving private sector business groups. 
For instance, I have helped in arranging financing for a project in Algeria for the liquefaction of helium. And the parties in that project, there was the Algerian company Sonatrach, the American company Air Products, and the French gas company Lair Liquide. Here we are dealing with development through private sector or joint ventures. So one is public policy, public project, public sector projects. That's the World Bank. IFC is private sector projects. Vinod, we're going to have to have you back just to talk about this. You can give me some like weird finance book to read, and then we'll just get really deep into what the World Bank does, because I really want to know more about it. So I'll ask you the question that we ask everyone to end the podcast, which is to recommend two books to our audience. One book I'd recommend, David Mitchell, The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoot. Another book I like is Marlon James, The Book of Night Women. This is about a slave rebellion in Jamaica. The reason I mentioned those two books, uh, just to kind of show that my reading is quite eclectic. You know, that is abundantly clear from your writing. I'm glad you mentioned The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoet, because we are actually going to be reading that with Ken Miller next week. Where can our listeners find out more about you, buy your book, et cetera, et cetera? Well, my book is available actually through all the major websites like Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Target even maybe, at Walmart. It's also available in physical bookstores, everywhere where books are sold. And also bookshop.org, because I do like to help out, support independent bookstores. Your listeners can obtain the books through bookshop.org as well. My guest next week is Ken Miller. He is the chairman of Ken Miller Capital. He is a guy who has worked in the financial sector for his whole life. He is also a novelist. He's super interesting. And we're reading The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zuit, or de Zuit, or de Zuit. It's Dutch. I'm not sure how to say it. But David Mitchell wrote the book in 2004, and it won a Booker Prize. So pretty cool book. Pretty cool guy. Pretty cool episode. See you next week. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. Politics is a national pastime. Right, exactly. Like, I don't mind sitting next to a Giants fan at a baseball game, even though for nine innings, they're my mortal enemy, but I don't really have anything personal against them. (laughs) 